thewellnesscouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. It's time to kick your shoes off, put your heels up, and listen to how to live your best barefoot lifestyle with your host, the barefoot podiatrist, Paul Thompson. Hello and welcome back to the Barefoot Movement Podcast. I'm your host, Paul Thompson, the Barefoot Podiatrist, and today I have a very special guest from Nutritious Movement. It's Katie Bowman, the biomechanist, author of books you've more than likely at least heard about but probably read, like Move Your DNA, Simple Steps to Foot Pain Relief, Movement Matters, my favorite, Whole Body Barefoot. She also has a podcast which is Move Your DNA, absolute movement guru. I'm really excited to introduce to you, Katie Bowman. Thank you so much for being here with us today. Thank you for having me. I'm really stoked to be here. Oh, thank you. So just to get us started, if you can explain what a biomechanist is and kind of for people who don't know what biomechanics is um, or what a biomechanist is, what is it? What do you do? <laughs> you know, such a good question. Uh, so... Biomechanics is a field of study that applies Newtonian physics, which is just, you know, things like forces, pressures, friction, traction. Those those are the words, the language that we use quite often. Um, Newtonian mechanics to living systems. So um, it would be the human body in this case, but there's biomechanics for all all living systems, for forests, for plants, for non-human animals. There's biomechanics, biomechanists who study all sorts of things. So a biomechanist is someone, I think ultimately who has that training and then different biomechanists do different things. There's people who work more in the engineering side of things. They're making, I mean, certainly shoe companies, often employ biomechanists um, to understand how materials work, you know, so it's engineering, but the difference between engineering and biomechanics quite often is living tissue is much different than materials because Mm. living tissue regenerates and it's not um, always the same. It's not uniform. Like you can have anisotropic tissues. You can have things that load in a particular way, like a leg is got bone in it and it's got skin and it's got muscle and it's got nerve. And every one of those is like a different material. It behaves in different Mm. ways. And so, and, and it also senses and it, regenerates and so there's much more complexity to living tissues than just you know looking what leather does and wood does and metal does so a biomechanist is looking at problems like that i focused on human movement um and then really i think i sort of got a little bit more narrow in understanding how movement influences physiology the performance what we would call health you know like Mm. would be optimizing um, so like I was really interested in like when there's a disease, what's the mechanical nature of the disease if there is one? So that's that's kind of who I am and who I am in a small part and what I tend to do professionally. Yeah, awesome. And that's like essentially like I love biomechanics. I think it's so cool. Like I've got a an interesting gait that's like as a podiatrist, that's kind of what I do, you know. We we kind of trained initially to look at symptoms and, and then how to help resolve those symptoms. But over time, I've evolved into, I guess, a self-proclaimed biomechanist in a sense in that I'm now trying to like solve those problems for people too and, 
and, and look at their biomechanics, how they're moving. Um, but you're right, like the, the human tissue is so funny because it's sensing, but it's also adapting all the time. So it doesn't just wear down, like you said, it regenerates. It's it's a it's a hard field, right? Like it's and everyone's so different. So apart from like the obvious, I mean, <laughs> why is it so important that we do move well? Like you you preach healthy movement books, podcasts on, on moving well. Why is it so important that we move well? Well, I, I'm, a lot of my, my work, more like my academic work that I'm constantly working on is to really get movement classified as a nutrient. And so if, if you think of dietary nutrients, the reason I use nutritious movement in what in the language that I use around movement is because I think that we have a framework for understanding nutrients. Like you can't just say, Hey, you need to eat well. Like that actually specifically means something. Cause someone can say, right, I eat salad, specifically kale. I eat kale three times a day. A hundred percent of my calories come from kale. Hmm. So it's arguably not as kale is arguably a nutritious food, but it does not comprise a nutritious diet solely. And so there are predictable symptoms that would emerge in someone who only ate kale in the same way there would be predictable symptoms that would emerge from someone who only ate chicken or it doesn't, doesn't matter. Like pick your single thing that you eat and over time, it tends to fail to meet the full dietary spectrum. So mm. I talk about movement, meaning there's actually a movement diet in terms of a diversity and a distribution of movement that our tissues, because they are so unique, that, that each individual tissue sort of requires and that it's not only your tissues, it's where they're located. Like you need to distribute movement over your body. So it's trying to figure out what that movement diet is. And just like, just like there's not one probably perfect diet that goes for every single human body because bodies are very much shaped by the landscapes in which they came up. You know, our physiology is informed by land and mm. land history. And so I wouldn't expect there to be one diet for every single human body. And I don't expect there to be a single movement diet for every single human body, but I would expect it to be somewhat similar across the board. And so I tend to talk about those similarities, you know, things like, you know, walking or two foot ambulation and also being able to squat, drop all the way down and being able to carry something like really basic movements that whether you are talking about a culture that was close to water that did tons of paddling, you know, where, where their survival, their bodies were shaped by that particular habit would be different by mountain dwellers, you know, who had mm. different physiological demands that would shape uh, the physiology a little bit, but I, I'm really trying to call out this diet. Like, what does this movement diet look like? And it's new because we haven't thought about movement. We talk about movement as a whole body state, your whole person is either doing it or not doing it. And a lot of my work has been to sort of stop that narrative to say there is a whole body movement, but there is also a, a local phenomenon going on with movement. Um, and that the ver you can be fit, but you can also suffer because certain parts are basically sedentary inside an otherwise fit and dynamic whole person. So how to mm. drill down a movement into 
a little bit more of the understanding that we have now to go back and revise some of these fitness and exercise terms that are sort of delayed beyond the understanding that we have of the phenomenon of the gravitational environment and how it affects our body. I think it's funny, you just, yeah, a few light bulb moments there, like, and I talk to clients about this all the time, you know, like, but yeah, if I have an issue and you're talking about moving, you know, moving often, moving well, and they, a lot of people assume that doing exercise, like for fitness, is looking after their movement. And what you were just saying then about food, like it just came to me, um, I guess what you're saying about the kale, I was thinking, you know, like it'd be like having, living on supplements all the time. That's like going to the gym. You know, it's kind of that false man-made kind of movement, but then not eating anything else and wondering why you're not getting a full rounded diet. And I guess like to sum up what you're saying, movement's exactly that. You need to be moving all, like we do move all day every day. We can't escape it. And everyone will have different demands on how they move, what their lifestyle is, what job they have, whatever that looks like. But we can't just live on the supplements. <laughs> we need to, right. we need to, yeah, eat that rounded diet and work on that whole body movement so that you move well, <laughs> right? Right. Is that right. kind of what, that's what you're saying, yeah? Well, I do. And I use the analogy that, so exercise is very much like a supplement because a supplement is a reduced form of the nutrients, right? So when mm. you take a supplement, what are you, what are you taking? You're taking kind of concentrated, the yeah. They've taken a, they've taken whoever, whoever they is, someone somewhere has taken the concentrated element and they've removed it from anything else and put it into a small form. And so exercise, what we do is we've taken this thing that our body does and we've pulled it sort of out of any sort of context. It's not, it's not like I, I think of the idea of carrying something, you know, that would be an in context. I have to go feed my chickens. I'm going to pick up a 25 pound bag of feed. I'm going to walk it over there and drop that. Or I have a 25 pound bag of stuff that I have to go take from point A to point B. That's an age old human experience. You know, humans mm. have had to take a heavy load from point A to point B stripped down of the context. It's simply picking up a sandbag and walking it back and forth across the room, right? You're still doing the movement, but it's not really serving any greater purpose. And then sometimes we don't have the sandbag. So we're going to create a machine that simulates a sandbag. And so you're, you've reduced the experience of what a human body did to this thing that you can repeat in high doses very simply. So yes, mm. exercise is very much the supplements. And just as you can't live on supplements, I think what we're really seeing emerge through, you know, exercise is a very new phenomenon and its study is very new compared to dietary nutrition, which has been around for hundreds of years. The pursuit mm. of understanding how dietary nutrient work is over 500 years old. So there's a lot of thought gone into that and studies of reduction and comparing and you can see sort of the way people fought along the way until eventually it sort of smoothed out once more was understood and with exercise we're sort of in the very early stages and we've got you know we've got the categories of exercise that everyone needs like we even talk about like you need some cardio and some strength and some stretching right so that's your 
fats and carbohydrates and proteins. And then, oh, but then, so like that framework was started earlier because we humans gather data based on what we see most often, that being our dominant sense, I think, and also microscopes being sort of the the dominant field, the chemistry, biomechanics, mechanics overall used to be when there was a Leonardo da Vinci and Galileo, like the understanding of the world in mechanical terms was, I would say, larger there. And then it sort of got waylaid by the invention of the microscopic. And then as soon as you could see things, physiology and human anatomy really started to be thought of in terms of chemistry because it was easier to see the reaction. It's very hard to see a force. Mm. You can't see a force, you know, and it's it's not as inviting where you can bring a whole schoolroom of children in to see a microscope perhaps and they get a they they can own that science a little bit more so it's just been a like movement just sort of we're we're figuring it out you know there's physiotherapists so if you have a physiotherapy appointment and they say you need to do you know we need to do 40 movements of this small rotation because some of the rotators are stronger than the other. So we already understand that maybe there's a micronutrient of movement that we're missing and we go in to toggle and create the motion where a lot of what I'm trying to say is all of these movements had a place in humanity and they probably still have a place in humanity, but maybe not in the way that we've set up society. So how, how do we bring them back out? How do we see how we reduce them, why they were reduced? And then how do we start talking about movement in a little bit bigger way than the supplement section? Because exercise is sort of dominating the understanding, mm. the conversation, but it's a very small part of the phenomenon of movement. So trying to expand that to help people understand, I exercise regularly. I'm getting all my recommended exercise and I'm still having problem A and problem B and problem C. And what happens is logically then you have a whole sort of field of study of people who say, see, exercise is not going to make you better. You need to have this more invasive or more chemically based treatment because exercise doesn't work. But we're not really understanding the phenomenon of movement to say, no, really, movement doesn't work in micro doses like a mm. chemistry being worked in microdose, like the, the physical world has to sometimes be taken in eight hour increments. You know, it doesn't, you can't, you, I can take a hundred oranges and give you a tablet worth a hundred oranges, but I can't give you five minutes of exercise. That's worth eight hours worth of exercise. And since the mechanical doesn't boil down or compress in the same way that chemical does, we're going to conclude as a sedentary culture that movement just needs to go because see, it doesn't work in our sort of compressed microdosing culture. So I'm just yeah. trying to be like an advocate for the for the complete phenomenon of movement. And isn't it so funny how you're saying how you move sandbags as part of like just daily movement, which is also exercise. Then you'll see people who go to the gym, spend their hour at the gym, but when it comes time to move something, even at the shops, like a bag of whatever, something that's you know a little bit heavy, rather than carry that, we put it in trolleys. So everything, sure. <laughs> so we don't use that movement any other time, except like you're saying that microdose at the gym when it's time to lift that machine or weight is the only time we use it. And I find there's a lot of um, we're so caught up in 
working parts of the body rather mm. than like what you're saying, the whole picture and, and working on patterns because then I'm finding you know, people come in and it's like exactly what you're saying where you know, they've, they've got a personal trainer, whatever it is, they're, they're seeing a physio, but they're still having issues, but no one's worked on the pattern. So it's like, well, cool, yeah, your quad's strong again or that muscle's firing again, but it doesn't actually know what to do and you're never actually using that outside of your rehab session or whatever it may be. So how do we start to incorporate these bigger patterns, I guess, um, and, and I know you're doing a lot of work to help people understand this as courses and we can chat about um, your new walking course soon. But how do we how do we start changing this? How do we, you know, as a, someone sitting at home right now who wants to start actually incorporating more movement safely but working on the big picture, how do we do it? Uh, how many how many minutes do I have to answer that question? <laughs> Go for uh, it. <laughs> right. Well, so I, so I guess that's the big picture. So for me, so like there's a lot of debates all the time to say, you know, there's movement, isolation movement, and it's like, that's too small. We should be thinking bigger of the movement pattern in context. And I agree, that's a step up, but that is still inside a very narrow filter that we're seeing the problem. So I like to, and I, I love finding parts of the body that don't move. And I, I find that that can often be such a great portal for people um, just because of maybe the way our minds have come to work in a in a society, in a culture that reduces so many things, it can be a good portal. But I like to toggle sort of in between the micro and the macro. So we tend to like perhaps you this has been your experience, maybe when someone comes to you, someone comes to me, someone goes to physio, someone goes to the doctor they're coming because something doesn't feel right. Like that's the, that's the reason. And so I like to um, automatically, automatically go larger to, um, to something beyond that because it's very easy to turn off the, I shouldn't say it's very easy, but it's often we try to start with turning off the signal of it doesn't feel good. So we can numb ourselves in so many ways. So if it's only the pain of your body that's bothering you, we have a, we have myriad technologies to make that so you don't even have to experience your own discomfort. Mm. And we also have an entire culture where you can just stop moving altogether and bring the culture towards you. So it would allow, so like if you have pain, not that it's not a big deal, but it isn't that great of a motivator to make change because our whole society is set up to sort of not deal with what we feel. So I go to the bigger pictures like, well, what's this keeping you from doing? Because then I have something that there isn't a pill for. So if you're like, well, I would like to be able to do X with my body, then simply making the pain go away isn't the goal. Being able to do do the thing that the pain or the situation is keeping you from gets you to this bigger reason like, oh, right, I like using my body. It's not that I don't like something about it. I liked it to be able to do this. I want to be able to do this. I want to sleep a full night without being woken up. Okay, now we have units that make sense to you. They make sense to me. You have something that's more of an extrinsic motivation. Mm. I'm sorry, intrinsic motivation. You know, it's not for any of these other reasons. So I, I do start with that with the individual because I think that that helps with adherence. 
sticking with practice. I mean, you're also maybe familiar with, I hate, I don't like how this feels. And you're like, well, how many things did you do when you didn't see me? It's like, eh, not that many of them, right? So there's this adherence problem. We don't feel good when we're told what to do about it. We have a really hard time doing the things that people told us that makes it better. So I, I think that the context of why you want to be moving is part of the solution of transitioning. And then um, I also think really the the model that we have for how people learn to move is sort of keeping us in the loop of thinking about it very in a very small way. Like someone will go to a gym or a studio and pick something up and, you know, there's a coach there that says move it this many times and you're going to like check off all the ways that you move it. But it wouldn't it doesn't automatically transfer that when you're in your regular non-exercise part of your life. So here's the exercise part of your life. It fits between these two fingers. This is this is the exercise part of your life. And then the non-exercise part of your life is immense. It fills up everything else. So that makes it really hard because your brain doesn't have any understanding that movement goes into the non-movement part. Like mm. we've set up the we've set up the signal exercise. You need the outfit. Like you have your outfit, your shoes, your trainers. Like we even call you got your exercise clothes, your trainers, the shoes that you wear when you're training. You've got music for fitness. You've got a, you need a coach. You definitely need someone because you don't know what you're doing. You have mm. a body. You have no idea how to move it. Like that's the sort of repetitive signaling this is over your head i i had to go to school for 10 years to tell you how to move your wrist in a particular way you know what i mean like yeah. imagine, imagine you're the person hearing all this messaging you're sort of like how could you ever conclude that you should move differently so one of the things that's happening in north america i'm not sure if it's happening uh, in australia or in other places but they've seen better compliance with physio exercises if a physiotherapist can go into the home and teach them there where the person sees my home is a place for movement there's all this implied it's, it's sort of like um it's implicit teaching and then i try to show people that their home is essentially a gym your counter at your house even though it might have you know food on it and storage and dishes is is really the same as the counter that you're doing push-ups on at the gym so just to sort of decentralize or de-specialize exercise equipment to say you have the equipment if you have a, the body you come with the equipment your environment can always be explored um physically in a slightly different way so really just trying to break the narrative of what exercise and when exercise is, I think is, is, is going to be the solution moving forward because we've invested so much into training people that movement has a special time and place mm. that, uh, that, that, that I, I was complicit. I, I'm complicit by having a training program to say, let me teach you how to be a movement teacher. So once I realized that I was like, Oh no, the message is, everyone is their own movement teacher. I'll show you how no more specialized. It's not a specialized field for anyone. Anyone can go through and learn how their own person works, moves. Oh, that's like amazing. I find the same thing. Hey? If you can teach someone how to, yeah, like a lot of the exercises I give people here in the clinic, it's things that I like, really, it's like, yeah, how to walk up a step properly. It's how to, I mean, take better 
like activate affecting things when they're walking. It's just little things that then during the day, every time they go up a step, it's like they're now thinking about that movement, but I want them to feel it. So some people will say, mm-hmm. you know, can I come back a couple of times a week? I'm like, no, I don't want to train you. Like I don't have time for that. I want to teach you how to do this yourself and I want you to feel it. You know, yeah. I can't be over your shoulder down the shops going, oh, just watch that. When you're bending, make sure you're hinging that hip. It's like you need to feel that movement so when you don't do it right, you kind of you feel that and you're like, oh, that was a bit off. Like, yeah. correct myself. Um, so, yeah, I think, yeah, I love what you're doing um, with all this. I think it's, a, it's, a, it's a, a message that needs to be put out there. But it's funny because people want to move better. It's not that people don't. It's that we've, I guess, as yeah, industries and things have taken over. We've now categorized everything into, yeah, you know, here's your physio time, here's your gym time, and everything it has its little box. And if you're not in that box, you don't do it rather than trying to, you know, it'd be like only eating if you went to the cafeteria. Like, exactly. what, a, what a pain. <laughs> right. know, like, so, you know, I think the message you're spreading is awesome. So what affects our biomechanics? Like, why do we – we're obviously – well, let me rephrase that. Is biomechanics, is it hereditary? Like, do you think that just because our parents move a certain way, we're going to move that way? And if not, what negatively affects our biomechanics over time? Ooh, okay, well... Loaded first, question. <laughs> yeah, it's, a, it's a loaded question, um, which is also a pun, um, a biomechanics <laughs> pun. But also, I always like to clarify the term biomechanics because I do hear people use the term biomechanics a lot to mean alignment or position. So for me, mm. I don't use the term. Biomechanics is a science of. It's a field okay. of study. So someone's biomechanics... I, the term that I'll use going forward, and it would be just to translate between how we're speaking, because I won't use the term in the way you're using it, would be alignment. So alignment okay. is the orientation. Yeah, alignment is the orientation of parts. Um, it includes joint kinematics, which is how how levers and joints relate to each other, but it also includes kinetics, which would be the forces that are created because kinetics is more invisible. Kinet- uh, kinematics are easy to see. Kinetics are really impossible to see. So mm-hmm. they would be measured by EMG or other things that would pick up the signal because I can straighten my leg in two different ways. I can, if my foot's on the ground, I can uh, extend my knee or I can extend my hips. So I can get a straight leg in either one of those ways, but the opposite side of my body is working. So the kinematics is the same, but the kinetics is different. So it's really important when you're working with bodies, just whoever's listening, when you're working with yourself to know that we're not always modeling what someone does with their joint position. Ultimately, what we're trying to learn is how they got there because that could be the missing piece because you could be like I did this many steps I walked 20,000 steps it's like yes and you're like I even have this form my foot hit up this particular way it's like yes but how did you get there because the how Mm -hmm. that you how you got there is what's really important to muscle and bone ligaments etc okay humans are really really smart like our body will get into a position like we will make it happen sure but modeling that watching it whatever i mean that's the the hallmark of a human is our adaptability and so it really is because we have this phenomenal capacity to get up when you are 
feeling broken in whatever way, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, physically, and you keep going. And so your body physically can just move around the parts that don't move. That makes movement really confusing for so many people, because when you've had people who said, you know, I've been an athlete for so many years, I'm really hard on my body, but I can still push it all the way, but I can't do that anymore. It's like, yeah, you, because your body literally in many cases, it, it really spins the part, the hinge that doesn't want to go the ankle that doesn't want to dorsiflex. You can get something that looks like dorsiflexion, but it's not dorsiflexion at all. Yet your shin and your, and your foot are moving closer together to take that step. But your whole thigh totally rotated out of the way to allow that movement. So you see your feet taking a step. You don't see your thighs rotating to facilitate that ankle movement. And then you're like, why does my SI joint, you know, sublux or why is my pelvic floor not working? It's like, because in order to have your ankles take a step, it's had to sort of shove all the other parts to go away because, because um, walking really has, um, like in the hierarchy to be able to get from point A to point B, it's really an important movement that you get there, which is why, which is why walking is such a great place to work on form because you, it's going to be something that you're just going to sort of have abundantly in your life. So back to your question, I am, we're, I'm, we're having this conversation, you and I, and I'm, American and you are Australian, I assume. You have an accent. I have an accent. We're both speaking English right now. Um, our accents are not hereditary, but our accents are the movements that our mouths are making. And we learned those from the people around us as we got older. There's a pattern to the way I hold my mouth and my tongue and you as well, we are both walking, but you have a movement accent from your parents and I have a movement accent from my parents or our parents or whoever, whoever was around us as we got older. So that's not hereditary, yet it's deep. It's very, very mm. deep if you can understand. Um, because I think we kind of sort of group things into inherited, not fixable, um, acquired fixable but there's a range right it's really about the depth in which those movements have been established so our our movement patterns are deep they are very deep but they are also malleable um now there are our anthropometric dimensions so those would be the 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 segment length and shape robusticity is the right word the density of those parts, um, some of that is inherited if we just went to, you know, genetic structure of our bones, but even our bones were set by how much movement we did or did not do. So there's always, you know, it's, it's not, I always say it's, it's not really nature versus nurture. It's really nature via nurture for so much of the way that our physiology works. The genetics can be there, but there's, there's there's what we've done with them to date. So starting something when you're five versus starting something when you're 15 versus starting something when you're 45, those two are going to impact mm, 
how changeable something is. Now, mm. theoretically, many things are changeable, but as far as the turnover of your body, like all these things are slightly different. So we're, we're working with this complex phenomenon of how fast and how much everything can change, but we're also simultaneously working on this phenomenon of being almost entirely sedentary. So meaning like the volume in which you can change is so immense that it doesn't matter if you can't really get a, a new shape out of your bone. We know the power of movement to be very, very powerful. And that's from an exercise perspective. Like you could transform your physical experience, maybe not your body, but how you feel and experience it working for you. You could change that with 15 minutes a day, with 20 minutes a day, with 40 minutes a day. Now I'm saying, I would like to show you how to change that by playing with your movement eight hours a day and the volume of change is going to blow your mind because you're, you've simply never approached the problem outside of an exercise mm. strategy, right? Like we're always trying to play around like what's the best 15 or 40 minutes. I'm like, why are you limiting yourself to 40 minutes of movement a day? Play with 24 hours because, because when you play with a larger volume, you can reduce the intensities like the, the, the definition of exercise really includes the idea that nothing else is happening except the exercise. That's what the clinical definition of that's what separates exercise from physical activity in an academic sense, in a scientific sense. Those are different because physical activity is the musculoskeletal movement you're doing while while also executing something else in your life, riding your bike to work, uh, carrying the bag of groceries from the store to your car or from the store to your house versus picking up the exact same weight of a grocery bag and just walking around in a circle in a gym, right? So exercise is that second example. Physical activity would be the more, there's more nutrient density happening because you also got your groceries. You carry them, you got the movement. <laughs> But you also got your groceries, right? And the reason we can't add more exercise is because um, there's no more time for only carrying around an empty thing that of filled of something we don't need to a place we don't need to go, right? Like there, there's a like our, there's no sense of purpose. <laughs> there's there's no purpose of it. How could you justify it? I mean, some people can justify it. But you, but it comes at the cost of many other things because, mm. you know, unless you have someone else to do it with you, you're doing it by yourself. Um, unless, like, so you, in order to get the volume that you need, which is totally, you could totally exercise, I think, at the volume in which someone else could move. It's just when you've made it exercise and gotten rid of everything else, the rest of your life then has to be compressed into a few other hours. You have to be able to make your living in that period of time and nurture your relationships and give attention to other issues in your life. Um, and so it just, it's really hard for anyone to do that except for movement professionals. If you're a movement, and so the, the challenges you and I have in this conversation are movement professionals. So we have to make sure that the strategies that we give aren't limited to movement professionals, which is a tiny fraction of the population. So I'm really speaking to those who are not me to show here's, you know, like the, 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 the non-mover, how the non-exerciser, how, how to get more of 
the thing that they're looking for. And I guess with that, it's like going to the gym and trying to compress that into that one hour would be the equivalent of trying to eat all your food from the day in one hour as sure. opposed to that. We know, you know, right. if you can eat and get that nutrient yeah. in over time, it's, well, I mean, it depends who you talk to, but yeah. right. in theory, it's better for you over a long period of time rather than trying right. to just bulge and gorge. So with that's really interesting. I'd never thought of, um, yeah, the hereditary side of things in that way, and that makes a lot of sense. So then externally, we're obviously looking and modeling our parents and people around us, so that makes sense that we're, we then start moving like them potentially, so there's that part of it. Then externally, what else in our society is affecting how we move? So sitting, we're sitting too much. Sure. I mean, it's all, it's your entire physical experience. So, so it's hard because we live in a sedentary culture. So we were put into chairs as part of the normal movement behavior, like the normal movement behavior of, and you and I don't have exactly the same culture. You know, we live in different on different continents um, and those continents and those countries have different priorities, but there's a, a similar experience that I would say many have of, um, sitting in chairs quite a bit. Your your learning or your children's schooling time is done in chairs for the most part. Homes, our homes tend to look somewhat similar where you will see the obligatory sofa or Davenport or chairs and yeah, cars. And, you know, the dining room. <laughs> yeah, that's right. We have cars and, and so and so when you there's there's many things. If we were just to talk about gait, if if I was to look at what's going into a gait pattern, I would say, what's your movement accent that you inherited? You know, you can really I don't know if I analyze uh, movement for a living. You do too. It follows me everywhere I go. And I can always pick out mother, daughters, sisters, parent, child. You you can see because they are, they are genetically similar in anthropometric dimensions. You see the same heights, the same leg length versus torso length, foot length. You know, there's a lot of similarities there. And then they were taught how to use it by the user above them. So you then you've got this non-hereditary piece, but certainly bequeathed. Um, and so there's this practice element. Um, and it's it, but it's everything. It's the shoes that you have been put on. It's anything that affects your foot strength, ankle strength, knee strength, hip strength. And then also the volume at which you use those parts, the environment in which you use those parts. Um, as I said in Move Your DNA, it's really, really critical to understand that you adapt physically to how you move all of the time, not how you move when you're exercising. And so, you know, even the fact that we use the words exercising, non-exercising, movement and non-moving, you're always under the, the gravitational force. You are always under load or moving so it's just simply your body your body's mass distribution reflects your relationship with gravity 
how mm. and your 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 relationship of your body with gravity like that's the simplest way to say it but it's how often you're moving it and what direction you're carrying it relative to gravity like all of that is informing putting shoes on with a heel or not a heel stiffness all that and changes how your foot works with gravity um are you always on concrete are you on different terrain that allows transverse plane movement or is everything fixed that you're working on all right you you are now informed by gravity and these other forces too of the natural world like so so all of those things when someone takes a step on a, you know, I'm in my place right now. And so I've got floating stairs back here behind me and someone steps on the floating stairs and I can see if their habit without them really realizing it is to step and sort of push off to the right or left when they are trying to step up. They never knew that they did that because they've only stepped on fixed things. So they just see the outside of their shoe wear down. They don't know it's because within their gait pattern is sort of a lateral push off that that's part of their movement strategy because maybe maybe that leg isn't strong enough to hold the weight. So it has to get it off quickly. So I just try to take physical forces and make them seem more like the ABCs or a story that's accessible for the mover. So they, they have a chance to experience moving in, in ways so that they can then adjust. Like how, how can you adjust? You're, we're giving them stairs because there's not enough stairs in their life. You know, there's, there's not there, or there wasn't enough time to really master um, the stairs as they were growing inside. They're just like, I'm full grown and I'm going to learn how to do stairs for the first time. I never really thought about it. Um, so yeah, all of that, it's, it's really complex, but I love it. It's one of mm. my, it's my favorite thing to do. And it's my favorite thing more to help someone realize it's their favorite thing to do about for themselves too. Well, I think most people, it's a shame. Like you, yeah. I'm, if you're listening in, but I can see the stairs behind Katie now. And that's like, that's an awesome visual. Like I've never thought <laughs> of, yeah. So the stairs, like I will put this video up on YouTube at some point, but if you are listening in, the stairs are kind of, they're hanging by chains. So each actual step has a chain on each end so that when you step on it, it's almost like a swing. So it's, mm -hmm. it's a, well, I can see maybe four or five steps there, uh, but each one is like its own swing. So yeah, as you step, it could go forward, back, left, right. That's I've never ever thought right. <laughs> of so, that sort of movement. Yeah, and, when... because I don't because with the way that most people approach balance, which is certainly great. Like if you go to physiotherapy, if anyone's ever had rehab for the ankle or the knee, you're stepping on an unstable thing. You know they'll do towels or blankets mm. or special boards. You know wobble boards, but those boards. There's many planes of stability for the human body, but we're just emerging movers. I mean, we were once amazing movers and then we went down to almost no movement. And, and in our place where movement is always going, it's almost going extinct. There's these buds of insight in the human mind going, we should save these seeds, you know, in the same way many cultures are saving seeds from plants that are going extinct. You know, we're essentially saying these seeds of movement can't go away. This is knowledge for humanity going forward, and we're preserving them um, and and teaching them. And, and I'm writing about them because I want them to 
I want someone else to be able to grow movement from these seeds in the future once there's just no examples of anyone doing anything except being on Zoom, right? Which is sort of a bit like imagine an emerging person right now, what they would think about what humans do and the movements that humans do. You know, there's Zoom and then there's the floating stairs. So the floating stairs is me just saying as a biomechanist, you're ignoring the transverse plane. And my graduate work was, I really focused on pelvic floor disorders because that's a huge issue for many people, all genders. Mm. Um, And I spent so much time trying to teach uh, thigh rotation, hip, deep hip rotation, those hip rotators the lateral hip musculature, so important in terms of stabilizing the feet and the knees and the ankles, then rather sort of work from, I mean, I definitely work from the bottom up, but simultaneously saying really your ankle complex is being steered way up here. You're going to need to quickly experience. Let me introduce you to the transverse plane. Now for people living in icy places, they're going to experience the transverse plane naturally because they don't have stability. Like imagine stepping on something super icy, you're going to slide right to left or front to back. Um, mossy logs that we have here, that's another place. But for many people, it's not something that you're going to meet very often in our sort of human covered landscapes where we do the bulk of our walking. And certainly not if you're wearing shoes where the, like the good feature is that they've got enough traction to keep you from moving in the transverse plane, (laughs) right? Or maybe people have that sort of relationship with they have a corn or something and they kind of realize that. Yeah. They sort of like know that it's that transverse plane. Yeah. So the floating stairs, I actually saw this at a, at a Scot, I was in Scotland teaching a workshop. I take my kids with me when I go and we do lots of movements. So it's like up for two hours before and after my work day to go play and hike and move. And I found this and I said, this, this is what hum- this is what the people that I know who are trying to move better, they can spend seven minutes on this and it's equal to six weeks of gait therapy trying to learn the isolated movement because because our body the computer system of your body the the nervous system how it how fast it senses and how when it's sort of in fear of injury how quickly it can bring parts to the party um happens so much faster like i i couldn't say now you know, you're going to have to hold your toes to this angle or really try to steer this around to this particular way. All I have to say is I want you to um, walk up and down that moving the stairs as little as possible or just don't fall off. You know, I could give them some much, much higher simple objective is like don't fall. And and then their their body, their the innate wisdom of their body can quickly sort itself. And then it sorts itself to the p- purpose that it, point that it can. And then they're holding on and I'm like, okay, now we're going to have to relax the shoulders. You have to let go with one hand because I need you to use more of your legs. Now I see that your whole body made it up and down, but, but there's a lot of shoulders involved in your gait right now. And that was great because you couldn't even get up and down. So now you found that with your shoulders, you could, but if I, if you use your shoulders, I'm I'm right now, if you're listening, I'm pulling my shoulders up to my ears. If you're using your shoulders for balance with every single step, your neck and shoulders don't really have the capacity to deal with numerous steps per day. Like they're, 
is ancillary the right word? They're like, they're like support now and then they're Mm. not meant to be 10,000 steps by pulling my shoulders up to my ears. And then, and then you have them take off something that they're some, some part of their, they're using some movement in a way that they don't need to. They're using it in a way that is preventing something else that has a better anatomical shape and capacity to deal with walking than their neck and shoulders. And then we keep stripping away pretty soon, not holding on to anything pretty soon. Knees aren't dropping medially as they go up Uh, pretty soon. Torsos aren't having to lean. Like, so you just let them, they just, when people come in um, back when people used to do that, they would, you know, everyone could come in and just spend five or six minutes as just warming up on their own, like kids on a playground. They don't need instruction. They just needed the environment for them to move created. Yeah. And that whole pass fail kind of, we'll go back to the word exercise in this case. It's so cool. Hey, like I do it with kids a lot. Cause I just mm. find it's so hard to kind of say, we'll get in this position. Let's do this. I was like, all right, how can I make them fail at this? <laughs> not fail but like how can I challenge them where as soon as that thing falls off them or they fall off that they know they lost the game (laughs) and I think as humans having games like that where it's like right and then people get competitive it's like oh right it's gonna be one more time we're gonna get this you know like rather than exercise where it's like really one more time I'm I'm stuffed I don't want to do any more but as soon as it's a challenge and they're not winning like people want to get it so I love that idea of the the stairs and anything like that, you know, if you if you're a movement professional listening in and you have other tips, ideas of kind of games or pass fail sort of movement exercises, feel free to, you know, jump in on the conversation at some point and uh, put comments in the on Instagram or Facebook or whatever, because yeah, you know, these sort of things are what's gonna help revolutionize rehab in a fun way for people and, and not even rehab, just to you know, have these sorts of things in a local playground at some point would be amazing. Imagine like, you know, that while the kid's playing, the parents can be just walking up and down floating stairs like that and working on their movement, but in a fun way. Like, you know, that's what the world should be. (laughs) So walking, I know you love (laughs) feet and and walking patterns and you've you've got the new uh, Walking Well program with Jill Miller. That's it's out now. I've I got it the other day and I've started looking. It's yeah. Oh, I haven't got it's through just, the whole thing. It's quite just launched. Yeah, awesome. So it's out now. It's out now. Yeah. It's I've I've started the I'm up to number. What is it? Um, two. What, what do you call them? Like not week two. It's part two of the program. Part two. <laughs> part two will do. Um, and yeah, it's quite in depth. I. I so far, I'm loving it. It's, it's really well done, simple to understand, great information. So um, I can't wait to you know, finish watching the whole thing and um, I'll be jumping on and doing a review because, yeah, these are the sort of programs that you know I think are really important, again, to raise awareness, to help educate people, to empower themselves to, to start making these changes. And then if you need more help, then, you know, go out and find a practitioner. But... Some of this stuff's basic, like Katie said earlier, like you don't need the years and years at uni to move your body in a better way. It's just kind of deconditioning maybe some old um, habits you have or thoughts and, and trying to learn new methods and, and learn off people like Katie and Jill who are masters of this. So, you know, I'll put a link in the um, 
in the show notes for the for the program if you want to check it out, which I'd encourage you to do so. It's, yeah, like I said, so far from what I've experienced with it, it's, it's awesome, but I'll do a full review once I, once I finish it. So walking, why is it so important? I mean, we take on average, what, 10 plus thousand steps a day, give or take. So it's obviously each step is leading us to a healthier movement body or a less healthy movement body. So why do we need to get this right? And why why do so many people not walk well? So many questions there. But walking, you have so many I good so big excited. questions. I get so excited you need, about walking. <laughs> you, you, need a, you need a four hour podcast. <laughs> I, know, I'm trying to, I, like, I like short podcasts. I'm trying to squeeze it all in, but okay, good. I, get, I get overexcited about walking. <laughs> like, well, and also to, and to your earlier, I mean, I think, I think movement teachers are important. I think practitioners are important. I think it definitely, is good definitely. that there are people who have made learning this thing of movement very deeply. We need that. I mean, we are at, like, I go to people who've learned other things deeply because I outsource sort of knowing lots of essential things, but I I don't think that it has to be a barrier to moving more. Like, I, I think that there are teachers and masters around us of all sorts, but I think we've gotten to the point where we're just like, I want to go to my movement session and have you move me. So like, yeah. you know, the, the people who've studied it are being used more as motivators and inspiration and, and accountability checks. And I just feel like that's a, it's a misuse of someone who's studied something in that way. Like you said, like, I can't be there for every single step. I'm going to need you to sort of step up to realize that you're, you're the person I, I will help you learn about you, but I can't move you. I can't do the movement for you. Like I can't be the reason you're moving because you have an appointment. Like you, you are, our relationship has to be, I will, I will share my expertise with you and I will take the responsibility of integrating it. And thank you very much. And thank you very much. So anyway, um, that's just for all the movement professionals out there. I love you. I think it's great. Um, I just think that in order to get us out of the sedentarism that we're continuing, sedentarism is increasing. It's increasing. There has never been movement professionals in the way that there are now and people are moving even less. That is a phenomenon that um, requires people paying attention to. Like, what is it about the way that we're doing it that's making people move less, not more? But anyway, so speaking of movement walking, another phenomenon that's going away. Uh, I can't remember the number. It was like children in Australia, school children in Australia moved less than, walked less than maybe 11 or 13 minutes a day. You know, it's so like here, here we have this phenomenon that is, uh, how do I, how do I say, how do you say how walking and humanity go side by side? Um, there's so much to bipedalism, you know, that is human and the fact that it's, human transportation, you know, it's the foundational human as a group of animals, the baseline transportation and the volume of it. The vo- And it's like, so it's not even the act of doing it. It's to look at, uh, so I, I spend a lot of time studying non-human animals because, because I think we get in a trap when we pull humans out of other animals. Like when you do other wildlife studies, like biomechanists get to study a lot of other animals. And so if I'm going to study gates, of other animals, which you might have, I don't know if you ever got to take any cool classes that brought in gait of other animals, but you look at tracks. So I'm, I like to track just 
like uh, as a hobby, wilderness, wild animal tracking. I'm fortunate enough to live in a place where we have a lot of wild animals, but it's the biomechanist in me that geeks out at being able to look at a track of a bear or a coyote or a cougar and know if it was sauntering or running or playing or pouncing, right? Because each one of those tracks is different because the forces being created are different. And so when you see how complex movement is in nature, then it makes it easier to not get so slipped up when you're talking about natural movement and humans, because so much of what we do is already outside of what we mean by natural movement Mm -hmm. um, in wildlife, right? Because of the place that we're in. So So when I think of like, if I wanted to, and we have baseline movements for animals. So like if there was a baseline pattern, like when you look at a lot of coyotes, um, for example, or if anyone has seen dogs, um, you know, their, their tracks are pretty, they're pretty standard over and over and over again. And with humans, it's about the same. You know, when you're looking at, if you're analyzing gait, there's like a, there's a, there's a range. There, there's always a range because we have different anthropometric dimensions and we come with injuries and experiences. But there's a certain point in which we have to call a gate pattern outlying or, you know, or it, it needs correction if correction can be made. So, yes, there is a wide range of how people move, but there's enough consistency through line of a baseline of a, of an, a group of animals mm. um, where you have to start saying, okay, well, if, you know, if you've got one foot pointing all the way out this way, or if you've got two feet pointing all the way out, the reason that that's not a sustainable way of moving is because the hinges that would allow these other parts to move aren't in the direction in which your leg is now pointing. So, so yes, you can walk this way, but the sustainability of it is going to be really short and you're not going to be able to spread that step over all the joints. Instead, you're spreading it over one. And look, you're also having an issue with that one joint, right? Let me help you change your walk, right? So like, just so people understand why we're doing the thing that we're doing is to, distribute your movement well over your body so that that movement is available in the future. Like that's the reason you're intervening with gait. Yes, there is sometimes, Mm. sometimes there's the immediate acute thing that's arising. Like I can't take a step because I have created so many forces through my gait pattern that now there's a callus here and the pressure is higher. Like, and so I've sort of walked on the outside of my foot or maybe I walked on the outside of my foot before and now I have a stress fracture here. So I have to sort of put all my weight off that foot to still continue to walk. So there's all these things that people are negotiating with, but what we're looking at is like, well, there's, there's a baseline for walking that we know allows all of the joints, the numerous joints, the more joints than you can realize that are involved in walking. So they can all be participating. They can all be contributing. They can all be supporting each step rather than having you take all of your steps using only your knees and none of your hips. And now you, now you have worn out medial menisci and you also have low bone density in your hips. Like, so like (laughs) just trying to create a really balanced, sustainable walk for the longevity of all of the parts of your body, not maybe putting a hierarchy of one part Mm. over another. So, yeah, so I like walking. I like the, I like the geek, the geekery of walking because I like efficiency and I like the mechanics of it. But I also think, like I said, it's transportation 
if you're trying to volumize, it's one of the most volumic human movements. So if you were to look at a movement diet, walking would be, do you have the Australian, do you have a food pyramid? Like America has a food pyramid. Do you have grains at the bottom of it? Like I think it's still grains, yeah. Right, right. So, so like if we had a movement pyramid, the walking would really be at the bottom of it. So to yeah. like when you, just to call on that food thing again, you know, if you have like a, a range of natural movements, if you have something like leaping six feet as being a movement, that would be more like in the tiny sometimes category, you wouldn't be leaping six feet more than you would be walking a ton because you're not a rabbit, right? But a rabbit yeah. would have a different pyramid. So there's this pyramid for humans that, is, that, our, that our anatomy sort of imp implies. And, you know, we're obviously guessing um, and working backwards to sort of figure out what that is. But there's, there's certain things in terms of, well, at what point do these tissues sort of fail when they don't? We're, we're sort of doing a natural experiment right now on what movements are we getting? Who's getting what sort of movements? What, how are their body types doing? So anyway, walking to me is just, it's really volumic. It's very practical and it, it allows you to take movement outside of that exercise box really easily because a lot of life can be done while walking or, you know, moving for mm. active transportation. Like that's, that's the easiest place to put it in. And I think what you said earlier in the conversation around how someone gets to a certain position, so how they organize that in their brain like walking is something, it's like that foundation movement. Like you said, the grains where even if we're sedentary, it's probably still the the movement we do the most. Like if you have to get up and go to the fridge or right, right, whatever, right. You are, you're walking and it kind of sets you up for how your brain's organizing a lot of different patterns during that those steps that then sets you up for how you're going to move in that exercise realm um, whether it's squatting, lunging, jumping, whatever, um, running. It, it's kind of if you don't walk well, I find it, it kind of – it doesn't matter what else you're trying to train and do. If that's what you're doing the most and your brain's disorganized in that, you just constantly go back to these horrible movement patterns that end up causing pain. But it's funny how walking is so underrated. You know, the amount of people that come in and just tell me all their woes and problems and pains and – and then I'll watch them walk and like, you know, you start breaking it down and then trying to explain it to them. And like, they just don't understand that walking's causing the problem. Like, it's so hard for people to understand that just yeah. walking can be such a like a painful experience, you know, because they may not get pain when they walk. It's when they do a different exercise, but it's yeah, that walking pattern that's setting them up for for failure down the track. Um, so, do you want to tell us a bit about this walking program that you and Jill? Have set up to try and help people start to correct uh, this pattern and, and, you know, basic foundation movement pattern? Uh, yeah, I think just, I think just briefly, uh, so I've always broken down gait. Gait's always been a big part of what I offer because, again, I just think it's, even if you don't exercise, and there's so many people who don't exercise, like walking, I've, I've seen so many textbooks, so many movement science textbooks and articles on movement not even classify walking as an exercise because it doesn't have 
like we use when we use the word exercise, we're implying a sort of intensity, right? Mm. And so it's so it's just it's just gotten to me. I feel like it's the idea of walking is so ubiquitous, meaning like yeah, everyone walks, you know, right? Like everybody walks. I I walk all the time, and like if you actually count your steps, I think that that's the nice thing about activity trackers is for the first time, like all the time was like, Oh, or 1500 steps. So like we're, we're not really objective when it comes to measuring our own movement. So I do think mm. someone who's been trained in objectivity when it comes to analyzing movement is always helpful and not all humans can walk. So, so there are, there's plenty of humans out there who don't have walking available to them, um, maybe even just because of a straight up disability. But then there's a, another group that I work with quite often. And I work with people who have disabilities as well as people who would have maybe an inability to walk because of pain. Like they don't have a disability that keeps them from walking, mm. but they have years of, um, they have years of not moving well to the point where now they cannot walk. And so it was really thinking about that population as well as the movement professionals that I work with, as well as the athletes that I work with, like what were the common threads that they all had? Um, and it was to either be able to like, so for those who couldn't walk, the idea that they could still get some walking parts moving, even though they couldn't walk. Um, for those that wanted to be able to walk but couldn't and felt like it wasn't available to them anymore, to, like, to be able to use the smaller movements of walking to rebuild their gait. And then for movement professionals to be able to have a better appreciation of the complexity of walking and how so many of the exercises and weaknesses that they're seeing in their clients really, as you said, relate back to you're not walking. The part that you're having a trouble with is like anatomically speaking, a walking part that is sedentary. Like you have a take, it's like, it's like you have a dog in the backyard that you haven't taken on a walk for 11 years. For some people, they have their lateral hips are like these sad dogs that are like, I wish you would take me out. <laughs> I'm, I'm made for this. I'm built for this activity and you never took me out. So I was like to be able to do that. And then for athletes, I think athletes, a lot of times are hindered, um, you know, athletes who have to often, they have a non-exercise life, a non-sport life, and then they have a sport life, but their sport life volume wise is huge, but it's really dedicated to their sport, maybe mm. some active recovery, maybe some cross training. But they're still even though they are the movers of our culture, they're still sedentary, sort of like we are. They're still in the cars and the chairs and the shoes. They're still not carrying stuff at work to like they're just they're doing their movement when they are and they're not doing any movement when they're not it's also a very specific movement. It's still very, and it's also very repetitive. So this yeah. idea of walking, one of the things I wanted the course to do is show what goes on with walking. Mm. It's you've got your, you know, you got your toes and your ankles and, and your knees, your knee, your knee rotates and not just in the kicking position, but in the transverse plane and your hips have all this motion and, and Hey, is your waist stiff? That might be why your hips and knees aren't working. So like we take it up to the waist and the torso, you haven't gotten there yet, but then there's a whole trunk and shoulder, um, relationships so people can really start to appreciate walking as a whole body movement hmm. not really like a lower body movement um 
<coughs> that blows people's minds and I find in here I get people doing breathing exercises at yeah. certain points in just trying to help them reconnect to their feet and, and walking and they're like how does it like people just don't understand <laughs> that it's even yeah. how you breathe can affect how you walk like sure. you know it's, a, it's definitely a whole body movement and like yeah it needs to be people need to learn this well not learn just have an awareness and an appreciation of yeah how but it's funny right because walking it's so complex but really like when like if we went to exercise um like to walk as an exercise it should be one of the worst exercises we do like we should be so efficient that it shouldn't be that hard really yeah but the amount of people like, oh, i went for a walk this morning oh it's so hard i worked up a sweat and i was like really you must be pretty crap at walking <laughs> let's talk <laughs> well, it just, shouldn't be that hard you're not you're not using your walk we're just not using our walking parts and then we haven't used them and we've gotten very heavy and big as adults yeah. right so I've watched, it's been fun having kids watching them, you know, <clears throat> walking is complex because we make it that way because we analyze it in the way that a group of people who separates everything would analyze it and mm. actually not do the thing. If we were all just walkers, there would be no Skype and people analyzing movement because we would be too busy out there moving to create all this other stuff. Yeah. So we live in a world where this is other stuff. So we talk about movement, breaking it down. But I think for many people, you didn't grow up walking. And so then your structure became full size and now you're having to go back, you know, and if you learned walking with shoes on or you didn't walk that much, I mean, I, I've taken so many people on their first walk over two miles. I have taken thousands of people on their first walk over two miles. And these are people in their forties and fifties and sixties and seventies. They've never walked longer than two miles they never needed to like that just seems so far like imagine now right exactly and <laughs> and i just think it's a regular decision to not walk that far because of efficiency's sake but you could quickly see how something we all take for granted as walking just falls away it just falls away out of a culture because everyone is on board with why would you walk i mean mm. i walk to a lot of places for a lot of things and i'm almost always the only one and almost everyone is skeptical. Like what? Like it's a weird, it's a weird, it's a counterculture behavior. And so, so yeah, so walking well is just about blending sort of like the corrective exercises that you would get when someone was like trying to show you how to see your own alignment and how to know, how to know if you're doing it in mm. the way that someone would want to. I use levers. So I'm like, if your knee moves this way, that's how you know you're not using the muscle that I want you to be using. If your knee is in this position, you are, you don't have to give it a second thought. You don't have to worry if you're doing it right or wrong. I'll give you the graph that I would look at so that you can see it yourself. And then Jill, Jill works with myofascial release because I think when people, when people haven't moved for a long period of time, our body sort of starts sticking to itself a little mm. bit more, right? So you're, you're, the adhesion that you have, not always in a scar sense, but the fact that parts aren't gliding the way that they need to, you need a you need a more subtle movement. It's a it's a smaller. It's what I call um, they're pressure related movements. So like, not only is the ground covered in sort of cement and our feet are wrapped in 
pillows with a rubber casing. So is everything else. Like, you know, your bed is like, I sleep on 14 inches of cotton fluff wool bedding. And I only place my bottom on things that have at least four, uh, you know, I need 15 centimeters of cushion everywhere that I sit. And, and, and it's so normal that, that we don't realize that we've made the world not push on us very hard. And so, so then we go to someone to like push on you professionally. So it's just like, yes, there's a whole range of other smaller micro movements that you're missing um, that that are these pressure related movements that get into joints that aren't moved as easily as the elbows and the shoulders. So Jill is she's really great at she's created a whole method and she's got, you know, different balls of different sizes. So you're like, we're like, okay, you're going to work with your feet do these exercises and someone tries them and they're like, I can't, everything's so stiff. And it's like, okay, now go to these micro moves, like do these micro moves and then come back to these exercises. Okay, I can do it now. All right. Now we're onto the ankle. Move it like this. It doesn't move. All right. Well then roll it out like this and come back. So we're just sort of going back and forth between the, they're still all micro, but within the micro, the micro macro, Mm. the two levels of micro to sort of toggle up to get you to this bigger experience of being able to walk for, for joyful experiences, hike, uh, take do a walking date with your partner, go out with your family, um, you know, holidays are coming up, do something on foot for fun, mix it up. You know, we we are in a time now where walking has never really been more relevant for social gatherings. And so I would hate to think that there was someone who couldn't participate because they didn't know what they could do with their body to make it better. Mm. Right, like I've noticed I, here a lot more people are walking because of all the lockdown stuff we've had sure. um, and people working more from home and whatever it may be. You know, I thought people may become more sedentary, but in a lot of, I mean, I live on the coast. So it's a pretty active community anyway. Yeah. Um, a lot of people have taken up walking down the bike track yeah. on the beach and people are getting hurt because <laughs> they haven't walked for that long. Things are right. stuck, fashion's tight, you know, alignment's right. off, whatever. And now they're finding that they thought they could walk because they might have walked from the car to work each day and were fine. But now they're, you know, getting up to that two miles, like you're saying, things are starting to get highlighted that they're not as efficient as they thought and and getting broken. So, yeah, so this course is, I'm excited. I think this is really, really cool. Um, One last little question I'd love to just, I know you've got kids, I've got kids. I want them to move as well as I can. I know a lot of parents are always asking me um, this question around feet and footwear, you know, how they can not mess their kids up. Do you have any last little tips for us on people with kids of any age, especially little young kids? Mm-hmm. How do we not mess them up? How do we, huh. even though they're modeling us, um, you know, are there things we can do to try and help them become the best movers and groove as they can be to experience you know, the, the joy of movement like like you're trying to get out there or are they just doomed? <laughs> oh, so that's my next book, which will be out awesome. uh, uh, early next year, which is a book about exactly that. What do you... What do you do? What does a sedentary culture do um, as a family in a community um, at school? Like, how do we all start thinking about moving in a different way for this upcoming generation? So just so everyone knows, my 
children are eight and nine. So that just gives you my experience. Don't ask me anything about teenagers. I know nothing. <laughs> uh, but um, I think really simply it's, it's not, there's not a tremendous difference of what I would recommend for a child versus an adult um, with the exception of children. I would say, naturally need less instruction than grownups need. So imagine all these things that I just said, like I would never give my kids a gait program or a book about exercises because I think it stops. They are naturally wired for fully experiencing um, and learning and adapting and moving. So you have to provide the environment. I mean, you have to watch that you're really you are really setting the boundaries of movement by the environments that you spend your time in mm. as as a family or as a parent. So, I mean, just simply barefoot time, ample barefoot time um, and then minimal shoe time. I mean, I assume that your podcast has probably already covered some of those basic things. Um, we we have no we have no seats in our house. No, so that was like we modified our home furniture so that before they, we all, you know, before they learned that sitting was a thing in a chair, they learned a whole bunch of other ways to sit that really informed their physical development. They, I mean, we certainly run into chairs in our life, but it's kind of like um, our house is much more um, flex seating. So, so there was no rut. We didn't want to offer them a rut right at, right at the, at the get go. So, um, you know, so if we talk about, if we, if we talk about to pull on analogy, we use before the accents that we speak, we didn't create a sitting accent or rather the sitting accent that we gave our children was not in a chair. Yeah. And, and so when you're not in a chair, you could be at any other 15 different positions and those positions would be arguably um, your, the human anatomy would be better suited by the 15 versions that they came up with than the one that we came up with, which just comes from some, you know, monarchy somewhere that everyone had to sit in a certain way. Right. So we could, we, we removed elements that way. Not everyone can do that, but even, even simply doing a lot more stuff on the floor as a family, you know, setting out a blanket and having family meals, sitting on the ground, going outside, you know, a really solid foundation with nature just overall. Um, really, really great, really, really paid off in terms of um, resiliency and comfort of mm. the kids in lots of different situations, you know, like they're not cold or like they know how to deal with being cold or scared or uh, uncomfortable or wet. Like they just, they know how to deal with it. Like, because it's not a rare occurrence for them. It's a common occurrence. So, and then, and family walks, you know, we, we, we walk and have always walked. Both of our kids were early walkers. I had one who was a seven month walker and one who was an 11th month walker. So very early, as you know, mm. for training but that seven month the one who was a walker at seven months is extremely physical i mean she was hanging and like flipping on bars when she was just over one so like movement has been sort of her way in the world i have one upper i have one like brachiator and one leaper one jumper like they really have different anthropometric dimensions and the movement skills that they're drawn to are very much the ones that their anthropometric dimensions 
give them natural access to without any sort of training. Just it's just their preference. Yeah. Letting them do it and, and and like letting them be and making making movement making movement our family thing. Yeah, walking birthday parties, all all that stuff. It's just been around movement. Yeah, it's awesome. I've found the same thing. Hey, like my kids, other than school, are barefoot. That's just mm-hmm. what we do, and we're always yeah. down the beach on rocks. You know, just and I think as a parent and researching movement, I guess it was different for me. But the amount of other parents around and family, friends, whatever it may be, that really struggle to comprehend that. I let my kids climb things barefoot mm-hmm. out in nature. Um, but I'm seeing my kids are six and three. It's paying off. Like the balance, like they're ahead of their milestones all the time. Their balance, their running skills, their muscle makeup is so different to their peers. Um, and I believe it's just that they're out experiencing how to move. They're using like their whole body. They don't sit. I mean, we do have chairs at home, but. Sure. They're out and active. They're always doing things, but experiencing it from the ground up. They and that's funny you say how they become more resilient. My kids don't tend to feel heat or pain, heat or cold, or even pain thresholds mm-hmm. are higher. We're down in the snow. We're down in the snow a lot. Um, last week, we sat at a chalet with some friends, and my well, both the kids, the lady we were staying with, um, said, oh, "Are they okay out there?" I was like, "What do you mean?" And she's like, well, they've got no shoes on. <laughs> and I was like, oh, they're out there in yeah. the snow playing. I said, oh, no, they'll work it out. They'll let me know when they're cold. They're out there for ages on the toboggans and stuff. And then they came in and said, can we put shoes on? I was like, yeah, sure. <laughs> Go yeah. for it. It took them a while. They were fun. They were happy. It's just finally yeah. they're like, you know what? This is starting to get beyond discomfort. Time to change this. And they did. Yeah, that's right. Because they've experienced it. I mean, it's, it's, it's like, I think that. As parents, and I don't know anything about parenting, so this is not a a parenting podcast. I make it up as I go. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. But I I do think that the idea that kids need to experience a wide range in order to make a choice. Hmm. And so the idea that parents sort of remove choices often because they're either they themselves are unexperienced and are sort of overinflating what the danger is of a scenario that – is scary to them because they haven't been in it before, right? If, if you've never been up and down a tree, being in that tree seems very dangerous because it, to your knowledge, it would be dangerous for you to be up there. Mm. So I just, I think that anytime I'm worried about anything my kids do, then I just go do it myself. And I was like, oh, it looks totally different than now that I'm here and that I'm over it. So growing yourself physically, I think is also really important to letting your kids grow physically. If you know, everyone, you always want your kids to sort of grow beyond you, but, but we're sort sort of stunted movement wise that I've just kept pushing myself physically in a physical uncomfort and doing things. And I'm have to be cautious about, and then I do them and I'm like, Oh, I was just over worried. Um, and then sometimes I get hurt and I was like, Oh, right. That wasn't right. But I, but I'm experiencing like, mm. this is, this is me doing how I'm doing human and that's fine. And then and you start um, to learn your boundaries too. Like I find like the kids, they'll yeah. kind of push that a little bit more and they get, they get hurt or like, yeah. I mean, that's part of experience, yeah. right? Then yeah, they kind of know. Boundaries. Yeah, I mean, there's well, yeah, not going to let him jump up there. Responsibility. That's right. Like you, so you, it's a, it's a, it's a balance of holding a boundary, but not setting it way too small, way too fast, simply because you don't know about the thing. Like, mm. so I'm, just, I like to help parents, you know, learn more about the thing to allow their kids to have a little bit more freedom when it comes to movement. We've withheld quite a bit. 
Mm. But it's funny, yeah, I think we do hold on to a lot of our own emotional experiences and try and pass that on. Like even in the snow, there'll be things that my son who's six wants to hit, jumps and things and I'm like, oh, buddy, you know, like, yeah. if I can do it, Dad, and I'm like, all right, you know what? Just because I know I can't, <laughs> give it yeah. a go. And he, he quite often nails it and you're like, damn. Yeah. like, all right, yeah. he can do it now, yeah. I've got to do it. <laughs> so, right. yeah. All right, well, that's, that's awesome. So more barefoot time, which I'm a huge advocate for. There's so many benefits to letting your kids experience the world through as many senses as possible and learning to organize their body like was mentioned earlier um, themselves and that, that's through feeling it like it all comes back to that you know even as a parent we can't sit there and say to our kids you know do this with your posture or like trying to you know look over that. their shoulders letting them experience it and, and the earlier they do that like you mentioned earlier as well the more they're going to set themselves up with the right patterns and and nerve pathways and all these amazing things that are going to keep them in better positions um, a lot more of the time and it's through feeling that so I can't thank you enough for for being here today and like yeah I've I've learned a lot um, from this and a lot of you the work you've done like if you I'm sure most of you've heard of heard of Katie Bowman along your travels Um, most people that follow me are are into movement and, and, and trying to, you know, improve their health and, you know, you're an absolute guru when it comes to, to this stuff. But if you haven't um, or if it's been a while since you've checked out any of the books or Katie's podcast, um, be sure to check them out. There's oh, so much gold in them, you know, and it's, it's there's a lot of great info that just makes sense. And, and again, it brings that awareness to, to front of mind of how we should be moving and well, not even sure, just that you can move better. You know, you're not stuck. Even no matter what structural changes you've got in your body, your arthritis or whatever excuse you're trying to categorize yourself into, you can always improve your movement somehow. And even if that is just thinking about movement differently, um, that can be the start of a whole new world for you or, or your kids or family or whoever it may be. So check out Katie's stuff. Follow Katie on uh, social media. What's your social media handles? Nutritious Movement. Nutrition Movement. That's both on Facebook and Instagram. Yep. Yeah, so I'll pop those in the link as well. I'll put links to Katie's uh, website and to this new uh, Walking Well program. And now I've got to sit tight and hold on to this new kids book um, <laughs> <laughs> that apparently is coming out next year, which is – that's a huge one. Like I just think um, parents are – what's the word we're not misguided we're just not guided there's no guidance for parents there's no guidance with parents um, around movement or i mean we're talking you know, we're taught about maybe food choices and things but as far as how to let your kids move and give them the yeah the setting to do that well it's just not there so that's that's a really exciting book um and i think one that that needs to be written um and that story needs to be told and and give parents that movement nutrition that you talk about that that kind of world needs to be opened up so i look forward to to seeing that one when it comes out so thank you for all the work you do um thanks again for being here um thank you all for listening in i'll be back in the next couple of weeks so hang tight if you've got any questions feel free to pop them in the comments below um jump on social media um ask questions there follow katie um, for more movement advice and, and guidance. 
um, and just keep moving well, guys. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.